Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy city executives and entrepreneurs empowered and healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster, a nutritional therapist in Harley Street, London, and I am really interested in finding solutions to health problems that are in line with a person's goals. So some patients come to see me, actually I call them clients, I don't really like patients, it seems so... I do like clients. Do you? I'm so glad you said that because I, I, I find it sort of disempowering. Patience is a little stigmatizing because it implies that there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. I think that part of what we try to do, I didn't mean to interrupt, but part of what we try to do as providers is to help people realize that, you know, we are all vulnerable at times and we all can become ill at times and it's not, you're not, there's nothing wrong with you as a person because you're a patient. You mm-hmm. just have something that you have a problem you need to solve and that's why we want you to come to us. Yeah. Right? Well, I like clients be because. I want you to feel like I'm at your service right? rather than I'm telling you what to do sort of right. thing. Right. Um, sorry. Sorry. And, and here we have <laughs> Dr. Dr. David Rabin on, on the show. So I thought we might as well introduce you uh, since we're, since the, the second voice has come into the uh, podcast. But a lot of clients come to see me because I have ulcerative colitis and I chose not to treat my condition with Western medication and I was looking for different alternatives. And I believe that we have a plethora of options available to us, Western, uh, Indians, uh, talking therapies, whatever, whatever it is. There's so many different ways to, to help ourselves. Why restrict ourselves to only one? So um, I, I like to do whatever works best. And for me, it didn't, I didn't think it was intuitive to have Western medication for the rest of my life. I wanted to find a different way. So nutrition, healthy lifestyle has significantly helped me. And that's why you're on the show. Because you have been uh, researching and working in the field of treatment-resistant mental health illness. And I'm going to read a bit of your bio here. Uh, You are the Chief Innovation Officer and Co-Founder and Co-Inventor of Apollo Neuroscience. And you're a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. And the Apollo is the first wearable system to improve focus, sleep, and access meditative states by delivering gentle, layered vibrations to the skin. And I'm wearing one now, and I can say it's rather pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> he has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than 10 years, and specifically focused his research on the clinical translation of non-invasive therapies that improve mood, focus, sleep quality, and in treatment-resistant illnesses. So thank you very much for coming on to the show. Sorry for the long introduction no there. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. Tell us why you're here, what you're doing, and, and what you're most interested in. So uh, so I'm in, in London, actually, for a very relevant reason. I was invited here uh, following the Health Optimization Summit, uh-huh. uh, which was hosted by Tim Gray just three or four weeks ago. That's we, right. So, so that's some context. We and met, that's where we met. We met at the Health Optimization Summit, mm-hmm. which was organized by Tim Gray, mm-hmm. and that was an extraordinary event. Fantastic. I mean... And it was the first, first one. It the amazing. first one. And I cannot wait for the next year. And you, you did a talk. What was the name of your talk? So my talk was something along the lines of uh, accelerating adaptation, and it was about um, how we can use not, non or minimally invasive treatments to uh, improve our resilience and really looking at the interface or the convergence between wearable technology and uh, psychedelic medicine and what we can learn from all of those different areas. Uh And so that's what I was, and and so my talk actually went very well uh, at that conference. Uh And- Very well. Thank you. 
Um, and I was invited back to uh, speak this week uh, for a press conference with Healthista and uh, the Pullman Group, who, which is a uh, which are two very uh, health and wellness focused organizations that are doing some really great work to um, Healthista being uh, trying to really focus on you know day to day wellness strategies for improving your life and all different strategies and. Uh, and looking at new health and wellness trends, and the Pullman Group, being the hotel that we're in right now, focused on um, a mission of that I, that I actually learned coming here, which is very interesting, a mission of helping people stay healthy while they travel, which is something that has been a challenge for me in particular because we've been traveling a lot, uh, and but for, I think for all of us, especially those of us who work really hard, uh, sometimes it's very difficult, particularly when we travel, to maintain our rhythm. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, it is one of the reasons why I'm resistant to travel because it throws me off so much that I'd rather not travel at all and right. just stay here with my, my little routine right. and my hermit sort of lifestyle. <laughs> but uh, So it's, that is really interesting. And I think it, it is um, a more advanced health strategy, and which is why um, which is why we're here to explore these different options. So um, before we go into the questions, I'm actually really interested in your clients and what they felt and the anxiety that they felt, the, the stress that they felt, PTSD and the empathy that you had for them. And it made you think, I need to do something for these people. I need to figure out a different way. Yeah, so similar to, to what you said during your intro, I thought you said it very well, which is that you know there's not always one treatment or one discipline of treatments that works for everyone. Um, I think this easiest way to sum it up that I found is that you know Western medicine is really great for treating acute emergent illnesses. Yes, so perfect. Where you're about to die or have terrible consequences from an illness, so things like infection that require antibiotics or um, anything that's an injury or anything requiring acute surgery to save your life. Western medicine is fantastic mm -hmm. and has changed the world for all of us in a very positive way. And antibiotics. Right, and, and, and antibiotics being a huge Amazing. part of that, vaccines being a huge part of that, right? However, um, it's actually been found over the last hundred years or so to be quite awful at treating chronic illness, particularly chronic inflammatory illness, uh, because the Western discipline uh, treats chronic illness the same way that it looks at acute illness. It says if you have symptoms times time, we're just going to give you the same medicine or, or a concoction or cocktail of medicines. If you take one or multiple medicines every day for the rest of your life to manage your symptoms, but it's in some ways what happens is, particularly in mental illness, is that it, it's like putting a band-aid on a broken leg. The leg is still broken, the emotional wound is still present, and the medicine is, is, is numbing or distracting to the source of the problem. It doesn't actually attack the source of the problem. And so that's kind of where Eastern medicine practices come in, which are in, like um, anything from deep breathing, meditation, mindfulness, to nutritional management, to sleep and circadian rhythm management, and basically maintenance of our mental and emotional health and inflammatory metabolic systems. And, um, and these are practices that have been around for thousands of years, one of which is plant medicine, which includes psychedelic medicines like psilocybin mushrooms, which are the oldest, probably the oldest known medicine in all of humanity. Thought to be over 10,000 years old, used traditionally by tribal culture, uh, often to treat trauma and emotional unrest and things of this nature. Uh, and then uh, moving forward into that has evolved into other plant medicines that have been used for, you know, ceremonial healing practices 
for many thousands of years, like uh, cacti containing mescaline, and then everyone is probably now familiar with things like ayahuasca, um, which is a traditional South American uh, plant um, cocktail of two plants, uh, and then things like iboga, which is the African complement to that. And so, um, so we and those and all of this together, all of these Eastern practices have been have now been shown, and I think Western medicine, Western science is now coming full circle to show that these practices of nutritional management, mental and emotional health management, even spiritual, the idea of spiritual health management, something we don't really talk about in Western medicine, um, but these practices taken all together provide a, a much more complete view of health, um, especially when you combine Eastern uh, preventative and, and health maintenance practices to manage inflammation, manage metabolism, manage our rhythm, our rhythms, uh, with Western medicine, we, we see a much more complete picture of, of how to manage health. And so what we see is that we can use both of these strategies together, not just one or the other, but really combine everything we know about both disciplines to, um, really enhance the way that we provide care as providers, uh, clinical providers moving forward into the 21st century and how we can take the best of both to really give people much better lives. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's been a huge part of my practice. And I, my practice, as you said earlier also, right, as a psychiatrist, clinically I focus mostly on treatment-resistant PTSD, depression, anxiety, and which is oftentimes complicated by substance use disorders uh, because people aren't getting the relief that they want from the medicines they're prescribed, so they self-medicate. And um, the substance use disorders end up being one of the more difficult components of these of these uh, situations to treat, uh, and so uh, because people become reliant on the medicines that they use for themselves, uh, and so and it becomes a, a practice that people get used to because for one reason or another they're getting more relief, even if it's a uh, still not hitting the source of the problem, they're getting more relief from the self medication oftentimes than they do from the medicines they're prescribed or the surgery or whatever it may be. So I work with people who are treatment resistant, meaning they've failed at least two gold standard of care treatment courses, full courses um, in mental health. That usually means two medicine courses and a therapy course. They, they haven't successfully achieved remission from symptoms. And then figuring out ways to work with them to um, help them reduce the amount, the burden of medicine. So, um, so one of the things that that Eastern medicine practice, practices teach us that Western medicine is now starting to, again, come full circle on, is that the center of healing it comes from within the self. So we have to be, and we have to empower our patients to heal themselves, and we have to focus on healing ourselves. Um, and if you look at the ancient origins of this, in Sanskrit, the word svatya, which is the word for health, comes from the root of self. It means uh, to realize the self. Um, or, and spa, which is the root word of that, means self. So the core of health, traditionally, has always been rooted in the self. Now, in mental health, after the, over the last maybe 30 or 40 years, it has become completely conclusive that if, your if the patient, the client, is not on board and bought, completely bought into their own treatment uh, with the provider, and you're not, you don't have a, a team, you know, you and your, and your client, our clients, we're not working together as a team, then the chances of them getting better and really sufficiently recovering and achieving complete remission or, or sustained remission for any amount of time is very, very low. Um, and if you have that buy-in, if you have that team uh, connection built with your clients or with our clients, then people get better much more rapidly. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's based on 
self-empowerment, motivational work. So, you know, one of the current best therapies for treating addiction is not a medicine, it's motivational interviewing, right? It's these brief interventions where we sit for 10 to 20 minutes and we chat every, maybe twice a week, maybe, you know, a few times a week. Uh, and, and you do that for several weeks. And what happens is those brief interventions motivate you to make change in your own life. And so a lot of that work is what I do with my folks and, um, and all of my clients, I'm happy to say, I am not prescribing any medicine to at all as a psychiatrist, which is really unique. And they are almost all in sustained remission. Amazing. And it's because of their work, you know, and it's so much more gratifying when you can realize that the benefits and the, and the recovery that you have in your own life comes from you. And I think that's the other, I don't want to take too much time on this, but I think it's really important to recognize that Eastern medicine practices really focus on this principle, again, that healing comes from within the self. So as doctors, you know, when we take a Hippocratic oath, and one of the most Absolutely. important parts of the Hippocratic oath is, is do no harm, right? Yeah. And when you provide, as a clinician, a diagnosis to a patient yeah. and say, you have a chronic illness, mm-hmm. right? And you say, not only do you have a chronic illness, but if you don't take this, so we're labeling them, we're labeling their identity as ill times time, right? So we're attaching their identity to a diagnosis, which persists over time. And now they start to make that association themselves where they see themselves as sick, as a sick identity, right? That's the, the, the sickness, the illness is inseparable psychologically from their identity because a doctor, someone of authority who they trust has told them that they're now connected. And then that you have to rely as, as a client. Now you have to rely on something outside of yourself, the medicine that I prescribe you to heal yourself. And so what you've done is you've inherently, as a physician or as, as, a, as a healthcare provider, we're externalizing health outside of the body. Mm-hmm. And so now the, the client or the patient feels that if they don't take the medicine that we've prescribed them every day, that they cannot heal, mm-hmm. right? And so it's literally reversed the entire process of healing to create a dependence on something outside of the self. It's completely externalized the locus of control. What is the single biggest source of anxiety? Trying to control something you can't, feeling like you're not in control of your life. So everything about the kind of therapy that is now becoming much more popular, and because it's successful, which is these motivational interviewing practices, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, all of the ways that these therapies, interpersonal therapy, um, lots of, there's so many, so many different kinds, but they all really focus and converge in the same traditional Eastern understanding of health starts within the self. We need to focus on motivating our clients to understand how to heal themselves, how to use the tools in their toolbox and use our resources to heal rather than seeking from outside to, for the healing process to occur. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I do think that sometimes you've been ill for so long and you've tried and failed so long, your self-esteem and your self-belief, I'm sure you have looked into the eyes sometimes of clients and you can see that they are so upset and so they have no hope anymore and they don't believe that they can heal themselves and they actually are suicidal. Or if if they're not quite that far, then they certainly don't want to be around or they wouldn't mind not waking up one day. Right. That's sort of... And these are most of the people that I see. By the time they get to me, that's where they're at. Yeah. Because they've tried sometimes a dozen different treatments and they've never had relief. And every time they try a new treatment, the doctor says, this will work for you. You know? And so mm-hmm. if you are... But they stop trying. They stop trying because if you've tried 10 medicines or 10 therapies or even two therapies and every single one doesn't work and the doctor says, this will work for mm-hmm. you, 
then you start to think that maybe there's something actually wrong with me that's preventing myself from healing. Mm -hmm. Where it's really, what's not, it's not wrong with you, it's wrong with the idea of what your illness represents to you. Mm -hmm. And how to reframe that changes the way that you see your health and how you actually are in control of, mm -hmm. of your health. Yes. Uh, well, you're more in control than you think you are. Exactly. And you are worth fighting for. Right. Because I think if you if you had a... a a beautiful racehorse and it was a winner you would look after that racehorse you would feed it well you'd look make sure that it was going to win its next race mm -hmm. if you have nothing to aim for and you don't believe that you're worth fighting for you won't you won't fight you won't go the extra mile for yourself right. um so i feel very strongly about that i had the privilege of being exposed to someone who i i sincerely care about uh extraordinarily addicted to substances and I attended AA meetings whatever people think about AA I think they do good work it doesn't the one the, one of many methods exactly that works for many people it, it does and a lot of people swear by it some people think it's it's not it's not great and that whatever, right whatever works for you yeah. nothing is right, right for everybody exactly. so um but they very much talk about I give the power to an external force concept to, mm -hmm. to, to get myself out of the situation. And I have to say, I came from a background of thinking I have the strength within me to overcome anything that my health is facing. So it's inside me. But I have to say, when you look into the eyes of someone who has tried and tried and failed, having that, I'm going to rely on something external to get me out of this, and then I can take it from there. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's actually, I, I could see the relevance of that. Well, that's a lot of the role that we play. Mm -hmm. in our clients lives right yeah we are we are still outside of, out of our clients lives we are not our clients mm -hmm. but we're able to sit with our clients and to help foster hope and help foster a a path uh, out a, a foundation mm -hmm. for growth so that they can find their own path again mm -hmm. right we all have a path we just sometimes get lost and we forget where how to get how to get back on and stay on that path mm -hmm. because we've been misled or we've misled ourselves we just haven't learned how to find that path and stay on it and ultimately i think our goal is is, is sort of like a modern shaman in some ways which is to help guide people back onto that path so that they can walk it themselves mm -hmm. right you can lead a horse to water but you can't make can't make him drink mm -hmm. you know you cannot force somebody to recover or to heal but we can help them recognize that their own ability to heal their own inner strength and then help them to use those strengths to get onto their mm -hmm. healing path. Absolutely. And I very much see every human being as a different a different body. So in, in, in plants, you say, okay, this is a cactus, this is an orchid, so this one needs to be looked after in this way, and, the, and, and this apple tree over here needs to be looked after in a certain way. So creating a self-care manual that's individualized and prescribed just for the individual, just to understand. So... I think it's very interesting compiling this data. Anyway, uh, let's talk about psilocybin because, sure. uh, you know, you and I could talk all day, but, but uh, the audience is just keen to know about the medicinal properties of psilocybin. And I think we should start with that point on recreational versus medicinal. So uh, before you came onto the show, I had the uh, uh, insight to ask a few uh, people if, what, if they had any questions. And seeing the spectrum, so... Uh, conservative doctors who are very curious secretly but but want to make sure it's all 
sewn up sure. from from medical studies and then recreational uh, clients who are more really can i do this is it toxic to the liver <laughs> can i overdose is it safe though <laughs> is, it, is it urban health approved um so um so yeah let's talk about the difference between recreational and medicinal because it's not the substance it's it's why you're taking it sure yeah so let's talk mm -hmm. about that so i think you know so psilocybin is really interesting as you know in and mu mushrooms in particular because mushrooms are extremely old in terms of their you know fun fungi are thought to be one of the oldest organisms on the face of the earth mm -hmm. and you know we we understand that many different kinds of mushrooms are therapeutic right we now if you look and go to your average health food store you will see tons and tons of mushroom supplements for sale and it's based on very strong evidence that these mushrooms uh things like shaga and uh, lion's mane and cordyceps and agaricon and so all these different mushrooms uh, are very potent at increasing the functioning of the immune system and some of some of them have been studied in cellular cultures and others have been studied in humans i think um but they've been used regardless regardless of, of how much current scientific research has been done on these things we know traditionally they've been used for thousands of years by native cultures um to heal naturally from this you know going back to this eastern discipline and now again western medicine is sort of coming full circle to start to explain how some of these things are actually working um and mushrooms are very interesting because when you use them properly they're actually extraordinarily safe um psilocybin in particular going you know is is, is interesting because it grows naturally and requires psilocybin mushrooms require no processing to ingest um so animals will you know they grow in dung uh and naturally and animals will eat them just straight away uh and uh, monkeys in particular and if anybody's interested in the full history of uh psilocybin mushrooms definitely check out paul stamets uh who is one of the leading mycologists currently and, and one of the longest running most knowledgeable people on this there's also andy weil um dr andy weil and uh, uh dennis and Terrence McKenna, who have been you know, some of the long-time um, uh, seekers of this information, mm -hmm. who have also provided an incredible amount of knowledge to the world from studying these things. And what we find is that, that psilocybin in particular is an extremely powerful substance, medicine, to help us understand our own capacity for healing. Our own, we're talking about human optimization, or uh, like, like the Health Optimization Summit, right? It's about understanding our own capacity for and so I think what's really interesting, particularly relevant to where we are right now in London and where I'm going later today, is to meet with Dr. Robin Carr Harris and his team who act at Imperial College. And they have done some of the founda most foundational work recently about how psilocybin affects the brain. Amazing. And it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And so, and they've looked at, you know, tons of brain scans and, and, um, an enorm and done an enormous amount of incredible work uh, that came, you know, out from right down the road, just five miles away. And, they, uh, and they've shown that there is a part of the brain, that, or sorry, not a part of the brain, but a network in the brain that we call the default mode network. And we've known about this network since the advent of uh, functional neuroimaging, where we can actually see how the different parts of the brain are talking to each other when we are doing different things. And so the default mode network is very important because it actually is consistent with how we see ego. So ego being this, this uh, concept of 
the part of ourselves that's very rooted in, in maintaining identity, maintaining survival, and it's associated with the way that we think about the world regularly. So what happens is as you go through your life um, and you do things the same way every time and you build these routines, what you do is you're strengthening the connection between your default mode network. The default mode is really what, it's, what it sounds like. It's the default way that our brain is taught to experience the world. And so what's really interesting is, and we, we know this, um, that when you start to engage in different ways that break your routine, um, you start to see the world in a different way. You yes. change your perspective. And so what Robin Card Harris showed and his group was, and, and now it's been confirmed by others as well, with lots of different psychedelic medicines, is that when you take psilocybin in particular, it disrupts the default mode network so the, and, and allows the brain to, the different parts of the brain, to still be active in a lot of ways, more active and more interactive, talking to more different parts of the brain, talking to each other in ways they weren't before, mm -hmm. but and freely. So, um, if you imagine, you think about the world and you live your life in the same routine every day, and you strengthen these connections. It's like skiing down a run, the same exact run every time, the same tracks every time you're going down the mountain, and then all of a sudden, you get to the top of the mountain one day. And eight feet of powder just drops in front of you and covers a whole mountain with snow. And there's no tracks anymore. There's no previous recorded way to follow. There's no routine. And you have the freedom now all of a sudden to choose any direction you go in, at any speed and make any connections you want that, that you can make now freely. And the brain, and so that's, that's really what psilocybin is doing to the default mode network. It disrupts the default mode network and What's interesting is it's a dose-dependent relationship. So the more psilocybin you take, the more the default mode network dissolves through that we see in the fMRI scans, and the more your default mode network resolves or dissolves, the less egoic you become. So, Gosh. so the more, you, the less you feel, the less you, the, not less you, <laughs> They're just the less, the less attachment to what your perception of you is. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we all have this concept of how we see ourselves which is sometimes different from the way that we present ourselves to the outside world, right? We have, oh, for sure. There's a, a, a... Oh, completely. Right. And that causes a lot of problems. It does, yes. Because um, yeah. sometimes yeah. we might have, you know, several different social groups or different work groups that we are involved in, and then we yeah. have our home life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we feel that we are one version of ourselves in our home lives and another version of ourselves in all these different groups, and sometimes a different version in each group. And so... Because of the social stigma of, you know, not being able to necessarily feel like you can be yourself in all these different settings. Yeah. Ultimately, that divergence between the sense of self that you know yourself to be and the sense of self that you project out to the world yeah. creates dissonance between, uh, between it, dissonance in our, in our ego, dissonance in our identity, where we, we uh, become disconnected from ourselves because we are starting to create multiple senses of self. Um, and ultimately the sense of self that gets the most reward is the sense of self that we end up sticking to and clinging to the most. And that may not be genuine. And so what these medicines do is they allow you to remove that filter for a brief mm -hmm. time, to remove that lens that you might've been seeing the world through and seeing yourself through for, you know, sometimes years, decades. Um, and then look at yourself through fresh, clean lenses mm -hmm. that do not have stigma and that do not have preconceived notions guiding or blocking how you would see yourself. And so this creates profound 
uh, abilities for people to recognize healing abilities within ourselves that have always been there, but we may just not have realized that we had them. We may not realize that we had, we may not realize that we had access to them the whole time mm -hmm. because we were never taught how to access those parts of ourselves, those strengths, those skill sets, those in the toolbox mm -hmm. that we have. Um, so, uh, but I think I, I probably only answered part of your question. I think the last part of the question is the difference between recreational and, and medicinal use. And the major difference is, as you said, the set and the setting and the intention that you come into it with. So the set being your mindset. The intention for me is huge. The intention is everything. Yeah, it is, absolutely. Right? And not just with these medicines, but literally with everything I, we do in our I, lives. 100%. If you do things in your life aimlessly, without intention, then they, la they lose meaning, mm -hmm. right? And meaning is critical to how we build relationships, not just with ourselves, but with everything around us in the world. And if you do things rote, heuristically, without thinking about the intention behind why you're doing something, then, and we all do this a lot because of the nature of the world we live in and all of the tasks that we have to keep up with on a regular basis, then when we do that all the time, then life starts to seem a little less colorful and a little less meaningful. And that's the same with, with these psychedelic medicines, but the psychedelic medicines are extremely powerful. Uh, the, the tribal cultures refer to them as master plants. And so what happens is because they alter our sense of self, if you don't go into that experience in a safe and well-curated intentional way, for example, you just take some mushrooms or take some MDMA, we could call it Mandy here, and then you go to a party, right, or a rave or whatever you want to call it, you're probably not going to have a powerful healing experience. But if you do the same exact medicine in, in the presence or company of a couple therapists who are well-trained and you have done prep for that session, and then you do the integration work afterwards where you practice learning, taking what you've learned from that experience and then weaving it into the fabric of your life, then all of a sudden, the things that you get out of that experience become things that you can take with you for the rest of your life. And then you get this transformative healing process. And we see that from the work with, started here with Robin Carr Harris in Treatment Resistant Depression, where people who have had, literally had depression for over 10 years, tried multiple therapies with full courses and never had significant and sufficient consistent symptom relief can take one dose of psilocybin, they can, in the curated, um, you know, curated, safe, intentional set and setting, and with just one dose, not only did they say afterwards it's one of the most powerful experiences and meaningful experiences they've ever had in their lives, but they're symptom-free for six to 12 months out with one dose. Amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. It's extraordinary. And it's, and it's very difficult, I think, for us in Western medicine to to reconcile that because it's a complete paradigm shift from the way that we have mm -hmm. traditionally treated these illnesses. But when, but that's where the Eastern stuff comes back in because when you look at the way that Eastern medicine has always taught how to treat emotional and mental unrest, it's always been about focusing healing in the self, which is what these medicines do. And, and I think what's really fascinating is that when you look at, and these studies haven't been done as much with psilocybin, but when you look at things like MDMA, which is, now in phase, by the way, psilocybin and MDMA are in phase three, or um, are in FDA trials currently within the US. Um, they both have breakthrough status, which means that they have demonstrated such significant um, healing results in their early trials that, uh, that they will be fast-tracked to the FDA if the results from the, phase, the new current trials are anything like the previous trials, and, which is a huge step. It's wow. an acknowledgement by the FDA of how transformative these experiences can be yeah. for people. And so um, MDMA 
is 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 working in a similar way to psilocybin, although it's not as as state altering. It's more focused on safety and presentness and and mindful empathic experiences, and the safety being a core feature of that because safety is the main thing. Emotional, physical, mental safety is the main thing that allows us to open to allow the healing stuff to come out, allow our own healing process to open up. Um, and so what we see is that two months, the MDMA is used slightly differently. It's, a, for, it's for treatment-resistant PTSD. It's three doses and 12 weeks of psychotherapy. And two months after this 12 weeks and three doses, people have had PTSD, treatment-resistant, for an average 17 years, 52% after two months after this 12-week course, 52% are no longer meeting symptom criteria for PTSD. Okay, is this is this in a clinic? Where is this clinic? Because I'm sure so people all, are listening. This is, this is multiple clinics. This is so that study was done in the U.S. in the University of South Carolina. It was done in multiple clinics. This was 100 patients. The first trial was in. So FDA. this is a study. This, this isn't was, a clinic right. where somebody can check themselves no, in no, no, and actually is, get treatment this now. A, this was an FDA trial. Okay. These will be available for treatment probably in in, in clinics, uh, specialty clinics, in the next year or two. Which is really cool. It's, it's amazing. Because uh, I'm sure there's people listening to this who actually really want the solution, so want to just sort of ring up and check themselves in. Right. So it's gonna, it, it will happen. Okay. It's going to take a little bit of time. And so, there are people practicing this in certain places around the world. It's just not, it, it's you know, questionably legal. Right? And so you need to make, because the government hasn't, policy hasn't caught up yet. Yeah. But it will, because once the FDA says that this is actually medicine and they give a seal of approval, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it's going to be start start to pick up. But it, what was really amazing about the MDMA trial is that 52%, two months after this 12-week session, which is three doses of medicine, 52% are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD. However, five years out, 67% are no longer meeting symptom criteria for PTSD. And so how is that possible, right? That's, that's even more paradigm shifting than the three doses causing consistent relief because by the Western medicine principle, if we were to stop treatment, we should be getting worse. But what's happening is people are learning so much from that 12-week experience, similar to the one dose of psilocybin, they're learning so much because of the intention to go in. When they go in, the intention to understand how to heal themselves, which is the, the, the mindset that we guide patients and clients into these sessions with, and they come out with so much knowledge about that exact thing of how to use their own internal tool set to heal. Uh, a lot of the therapists and the doctors who work in this call it the internal, our own internal healer or inner healer. And they have so much knowledge and connection to this afterwards that they can continue those practices after for years and years and years to the point where they're getting better and better on their own without more medicine, without more therapy, right? And so to see that kind of thing happening is truly it's amazing. Uh, it's it not only is it amazing, it's the first thing and the closest thing to a cure we've ever had in mental illness. Mm -hmm. So it's really imperative that we, that we all get on board with this, understanding the evidence base, which is very, very significant. And basically at this point, I would, I would venture to say undeniable, because if you actually go and read the papers that have been done, that have been published in you know, world-renowned peer-reviewed medical journals, there's, you cannot deny these results that people are finding because they are constantly reproducible, mm -hmm. not only on the neuroimaging level, but also on the clinical level. And so it's, you know, it's critical that we all work together to figure out 
how these nutrients, these medicines, are helping us to facilitate the healing process moving forward in new ways. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing somebody in my, well, well, but I meditate, can't I do that? Why do I need to take something? Uh, and the thing is, when there's so much noise in the head, it can be difficult to just rely on meditation. And, uh, and again, it's a skill thing. So I do know people who have been skilled in meditation and can achieve these states without using um, any any medicine whatsoever. But for the, for those who haven't had those skills, from they they, need, they feel the need, or they would certainly benefit for something else. So I think what's happened with CBD oil and CBD in general. So I believe that's legal now, mm-hmm. and cannabis is legal in certain states. Mm-hmm. Is 30, psilocybin states. okay? Is, is, is psilocybin legal anywhere? It is decriminalized in a few areas, but not legal. Okay. Decriminalized meaning that they will not prosecute you for having it. They might take it away if they find it on you, but they're not going to prosecute you for having it. So we're probably a year or two out from having psilocybin on prescription, for example. Like It's never going to be, I shouldn't say never, it's going to be a long time before it is prescription in the way that our current medicines are prescribed where we send people home with it to use on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what we're going to see first is that it's going to be prescribed as a psychotherapy-assisted treatment because what these medicines are is they're catalysts to the healing process. So there's something that that it's it's like a tool that speeds up the healing process. So like you said, meditation and managing nutrition and physical exercise, all these things. These are the ways that we naturally, without any medicine, we all have the ability, for the most part, to do those things and facilitate recovery. Mm -hmm. But some of us have been practicing or have been ill for years, not necessarily on purpose, but we've been diagnosed. And so, you know, our identities and our illness have become very tightly associated as we've been taught. And then we've been ill for years decades and we've been practicing thinking about ourselves as ill and the more practice makes perfect right so the more you think about yourself as ill the more you see yourself as absolutely i think there's a difference between self-aware and then being in denial and i I actually think that a certain amount of denial is quite cool post-diagnosis so i i say i have a phrase your dna is not your your destiny and you are not your diagnosis you define yourself so Yes, I have ulcerative colitis, but I really don't see myself as one of those ulcerative colitis. I, right. I, I, I don't link it to my identity right. consciously. You don't see yourself as a sick person. No. no. Right. I, before, I did because I, <laughs> I was so sick right. that you can't really not see yourself as a sick person. But I started to believe that I wasn't. And as a result, I started to, to become not well, that belief inherently fosters that change yeah. that you made in your life that allows you to now see yourself for you mm-hmm. and the illness being something that is a modifying factor. Yeah. Right? It's something it's, it's something that you have to cope with and that there are lots of different ways to do that, but it's not a defining factor of Stephanie. Yeah. Right? And so I think that when it comes to the natural techniques, like the, the things that we always work with our, our clients on, Again, meditation, deep breathing, nutrition, regular exercise, all these things. These are incredible natural practices that we should all be doing more on a regular basis, myself included. Um, Yeah, me too. But they can take thousands of hours, thousands of hours to train and practice to become proficient at. 
-hmm. And when we are already ill or we're already really stressed out, you know, or we're traveling all the time, uh, for what, you know, whatever it is, it's driving your stress. It can become really difficult to shift your routine because stress directly inhibits mm -hmm. change. And so, um, so what, what psychedelic medicines provide us with an opportunity for is to give somebody that feeling mm -hmm. for a very brief amount of time. And I say brief, like eight to 12 hours, you know, of what it's like to feel not ill. What is it like yeah. to feel healthy again or to feel hope, to feel belief, to feel that there is a way out? For maybe the first time ever, maybe the first time since you were a little small child. Um, and when you can give people that for a brief amount of time, when you can disrupt the default mode network for a brief amount of time, this default way that we've been seeing ourselves, default lens we've been looking through, what happens is you have a little bit of a reset where you're able to see yourself clearly, see your, the world around us clearly, and see your path, see your opportunities for healing that are right in front of you and understand that you have access to those things and then help. And then you can use what you've learned from that experience, from that eight to 12 hour experience or mm -hmm. in case of MDMA from the three, eight hour sessions that you do in over 12 weeks to understand how to integrate meditation more effectively into your life, mm -hmm. how to integrate exercise and wellness practices on a daily basis or even better, a moment to moment basis into our lives. Meditation, we always think about as taking time out to sit cross-legged, mm -hmm. right? And and be and be present, breathing, you know. But meditation is a practice that is not meant to be just taking time out of your present. It's about being present all the time. It's about being mindful all the time in every waking and walking moment of your life. Yeah. And so the goal of the practice where you sit cross-legged and focus on on your breath and your body and all these things is training and practice to help us bring that in those skill sets into the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so psych psychedelic medicines like psilocybin, like MDMA, um, have now been shown without a doubt to be incredible catalysts to accelerate this experience in people, mm -hmm. to help them break that cycle of illness. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, for those who are listening who, who find the legality aspect disturbing, well, I actually find processed food a little bit disturbing, and that's perfectly legal. And alcohol is widely available, and that's um, that's legal uh, to a point. <laughs> and then you can't drive with it and all this. But the, I, I just find society's value system slightly odd. So there's something about using something that's from the ground that's quite appealing. Um, and I just think you need to do what's right for you. I think you need to connect with your own body, connect with, with your own intuition, and uh, take control of your own life and your own health and and start to believe that you can change and it doesn't have to be this way and other people are healthy why can't you be and be open to change mm -hmm. and i believe in in brain we are, we are the most adaptive organisms in the world you know that is evolution. why we, evolutionarily that's yeah. why we've reached where we have in the world even no other animals have created what we're looking at right now at this window you know, or this hotel, right? It's us because we are incredibly adaptive. That is our best skill set. So to, to deny ourselves that tool set is to deny what it really means to be human. Yeah. It's to deny our own ability to heal, to adapt, to change, to be resilient. I almost feel like I'm too, if I take Western medicine, I almost feel like I'm incubating myself and that I, other, I otherwise would not have survived 
<laughs> if it wasn't for Western medicine. So I probably am an... Probably most of us. Well, I don't, I don't know, but it's probably not a helpful belief for me to have that I'm an offcut, yeah. unless, unless otherwise um, assisted by Western medicine. But I would like to now talk about your treatment, the old bracelets, your Apollo, oh. because it's not vibrating enough now, actually. Oh, it's, uh, it's on a cycle. I can put it back on for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, I want, I want more intense again. You got it. I, I am so impressed with this, though. I'm so glad. So I'm the, so impressed. So the way we developed this was based on exactly what you just said, which is that you know, that people, it's, it's critical for the healing process to occur. People is, have to understand that they have the own, that they are in control, right? That they mm -hmm. are safe and that they have the ability to heal themselves. And so the, the basis for Apollo is Apollo was developed. So I'm also an MDMA, a trained MDMA psychotherapist. I was trained as part of the trial for, for the wow. phase three that's going on currently in the U.S. And that's actually, I think, it's like 14 to 18 sites worldwide for this study. Uh, there's a couple sites in Israel, uh, a couple sites in Europe, and then a couple in Canada, and most of them are in the US. And so, uh, and I was trained not to actually be, be a clinical component of the trial, but to run the study, which I'm running with colleagues at Yale, Mount Sinai, uh, and University of Southern California, to look at the actual mechanism uh, of how these medicines work. And what I found, and when we're running that study now, actually, by collecting saliva samples from people before and after their, their um, medicine treatments, so, so for the case of MDMA, we collect a saliva sample before they start their treatment, and then we collect another sample after the 12 weeks, and then every six months afterwards. The idea being that uh, from the saliva, we can assess epigenetic markers in the body, and we know, thanks to Rachel, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, uh, from Mount Sinai, who, who was one of the first people to discover scientifically that trauma is inherited transgenerationally on the epigenetic code. Not in the DNA, not in the A, C, T's, and G's, but actually on the DNA through these little markers that we call methylation groups of very small markers that are in, I mean, methyl groups are in like everything around us. But I'll just pause you there. Let's, let's sure. talk about the difference between genetics and epigenetics just as an yeah. education point, and then you can carry on. Sure. So, so genetics are the DNA code itself. So that's the, it's made of the nucleotides that we call like A, C, T, and G. Um, this is what was discovered by Watson and Crick, who, Crick being another wonderful uh, uh, Brit who's done incredible work and won the Nobel, both won the Nobel Prize for this work. And so uh, what they found was that, the, that these four, what we call nucleotides or base pairs, they, or the nucleotides form base pairs that, that have a structure of a double helix, which forms a foundation of DNA. And since that discovery, we've, all, we've, all, we've thought that our, our destiny is because of this code. Mm. And because that code is inherited from our, our parents, which is inherited from their parents and so on and so forth. And what's really interesting now is that we've learned that there's something else going on, which is that it's not just what's in the DNA that matters, it's what's on the DNA. And the best way to think about that is that you, we actually have all the same DNA code in every single cell of our body except our sperm and egg, mm -hmm. right? Every single other cell in the body has literally every single piece of DNA that's identical, but not all of it's expressed in every cell. So your skin cells and your brain cells, just as an example, have identical DNA in them 
if we were to take both of those cells and break them apart in a lab and look at the DNA code and sequence it, it would be identical, right? But your skin cells know to be skin and your brain cells know to be brain. How do they know? They know because there's little markings on the parts of the cell, that, on the DNA, that encode skin proteins that turn those cells into skin and make them functionally skin and look like skin. And those are not the same markers that are on the brain cells. The brain cells have markings that are epigenetic markings on the DNA that silence the skin stuff and boost the brain stuff. Mm -hmm. And that makes neurons and oligodendrocytes and astrocytes and all these things that make the brain. And you don't want the brain stuff to be expressing skin proteins. You don't want the skin protein, the skin cells to be expressing brain proteins. You want them to have their distinct roles and functions. And so that's how we originally found out what epigenetics were. Mm -hmm. But I think there's been a pattern that's been actually uh, clinically observed since the early 20th century, which is that people who experience trauma have offspring who have been raised in relatively safe environments and that their offspring, even though they were raised in safe environments, have increased predisposition to PTSD, depression, anxiety, and oftentimes metabolic disorders and other inflammatory disorders, even though there's no genetic relationship, there's no DNA issue, and nobody knew why, but they knew that there was something inherited going on, something heritable. Um, and so... And it's not environmental factors, like an, an anxious parent creates an anxious child. It's not... Well, that's part of it. Okay. Because the what we found, because thanks to Rachel Yehuda's work of actually looking at the at the epigenetics, the the the, the, the these little methyl groups uh, and these different groups that are controlling DNA expression, there those same groups are not just on skin and brain cell proteins; they're also on stress response proteins and reward response proteins and inflammatory proteins and immune proteins. And so, if for example you are exposed to chronic stress or trauma, or you're and then you have a child then that chronic stress causes changes to your expression of cortisol and cortisol receptor. Just as an example, lots of things are changing, but as an example, your cortisol expression patterns are changing. When you have a child, evolutionarily, if your child's being raised in the same environment that you're in, which evolutionarily is often the case, you want your child to have some of those protective factors that you adapted in your life to deal with stress. So the environment causes epigenetic changes to and this has now been demonstrated without a doubt through looking at Holocaust survivors and survivors of terrible famines and genocide and catastrophe, and they've looked at all of their offspring, and now it's been replicated in mice. And they've shown that if they traumatize a baby mouse pup, and you look at the changes to DNA expression and cortisol genes and this kind of thing, and you look at what happens to that first traumatized mouse, we can map out all the changes in the epigenetic code, the code that controls DNA expression of stress response genes, and then we see that those, even though the offspring of that mouse, those mice were raised completely safe, completely free of stress, that those changes pass on for at least four generations. At least wow. four generations. It's extraordinary. So in humans, we can't guarantee safety or a trauma-free life for any of us, right? No. So chances are that our trauma, if we're not resolving it, can actually potentially get passed on much further. And so... The importance of that is... That is boggling, isn't it? It, it is. And, and, I, and it's actually, in a lot of ways, scary. Because it, it is. Because it shows us that the effects of trauma are much... They go much further than just in our own lives and much further than just the behavior and the way that we treat our children and our relationships in our lives. Um, but I think the promising part of all of this is that if negative... If trauma 
which we can define as a very powerful negative meaningful experience or many powerful negative meaningful experiences can reliably cause these expression epigenetic expression pattern changes to stress response genes then positive powerful meaningful experience can potentially reverse it and that's what we seem to be seeing and that's the study that i'm running with the folks at yale and, and usc and sinai is to look at if how we can reverse those changes and we we have a, a lot of evidence to say that we can it's just we don't know for sure because we just now recently have developed the scientific techniques to do all this analysis um, and now we have the tools for example psychedelic medicine which are clinically reversing all of the effects of trauma with just one to three doses so if trauma is causing 17 20 30 years of deficit or or negative symptoms from just one or several traumatic experiences then why can't one really really powerful spiritual emotional mental or therapeutic experience reverse that process down to the level of the epigenetic code and so we're actually looking at that across people in controlled settings getting mdma psilocybin uh, and then tribal people using ayahuasca in the traditional tribal setting because ayahuasca and psilocybin are the oldest form of trauma treatment mdma is now the newest form of trauma treatment they both have their own ceremony but they're just done in different settings mm -hmm. so we're comparing the psychedelic medicines used in the controlled setting of the lab compared to psychedelic medicines used in the traditional setting of the tribe and then also comparing that to human neural stem cells that have no understanding for the most part of what a ceremonial or intentional experience is and then applying the same exact psychedelic medicines to them with a group we're working with in brazil and also another group at sinai and so we're going to compare how the cells are responding to these medicines and then how humans with deficit or with uh, chronic illnesses are responding to these medicines and looking at the difference mm -hmm. however what we know from all this work and i think you know most go just taking a step back for a moment because we really did a deep dive there and taking a step back is that safety safety is a physiological process that has a certain pattern in of, of uh, nervous system activity in the body where uh, the amygdala, the fear center in, in the emotional brain, comes down in activity. It's over, the amygdala is overactive when we are chronically stressed, when we're chronically ill, when we have any of these disorders, chronic disorders we're talking about. And, and when we are feeling good and we're feeling balanced and we're feeling safe, amygdala activity comes down. Emotional cortex activity in the insula, which is responsible for empathy, interoception, feeling the body and introspection, thinking about the self, uh, connecting with yourself emotionally, mentally activity in that area goes up, right? And so, and we know that MDMA from the mouse studies actually does this. It actually does this. Mechanistically, we've shown that it boosts activity in the emotional cortex in the insula and inhibits activity in the amygdala, unwanted ideally activity, right? That is creating an unwanted fear response. And so Apollo was developed to send frequencies to the body did it turn back on, by the way? It, it, it's, so, it's so funny, actually. May, may I talk about this bracelet? Yeah. Okay. But so Paul, basically it was developed to replicate that effect of safety by activating the touch receptor system. Because touch is the single most important way that we form bonds with one another. Oh, right? okay. So what about people who don't like being touched? Well, people who don't like being touched usually don't like being touched because there's a negative or traumatic connotation that has been experienced with touch. And so... What's interesting about this mm -hmm. is that it doesn't have the association of another person there. 
And so for people even yeah. who are afraid or have had trauma so terms. In touch, it's on their terms and they're yeah. always in control of it because there's buttons on the device yeah. that allow you to control when it's on, when it's off, how intense it is, and, and et cetera. And so what it does is it goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is it brings the locus of control of the healing process back to the patient, yes. back to the client back to us, mm -hmm. right? So that you recognize that when you activate this device on your body or it's activated automatically by the app, however you want to set it, yeah. um, that you are in control of when you feel better and balanced and, and, and the effects replicate the, or were designed through the, our understanding of the neuroscience of, of stress and resilience and recovery to increase activity in the parasympathetic nervous system, which is exactly what soothing gentle touch does when we get a hug from a loved one on a bad day or something to that effect. And it boosts activity in the parasympathetic nervous system, which increases the safety response, just like deep breathing or meditation. And it's something, but it's something that you can take with you anywhere you go. Yeah. And then over time, it trains your nervous system to understand what feeling balanced feels like. And when you feel balanced for the first time, after maybe 17 years of being chronically ill and always hypervigilant and always stressed, you really notice a difference because your body is like, oh. I remember this. I remember this from when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I remember this from when I was the last time I felt well. Well, 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 maybe not even as a kid. Maybe this is the first time in your life. Sometimes you, it's the first time in your life. If you were ill all your life or abused or it, this might be the first time Or even people ever. told you you were ill and you yeah. weren't. Yeah. But. And so um, I, I will say, so uh, before we started the podcast, you put this... Should we call it a bracelet or an, an, an uh, ankle? Yeah, even uh, device. Yeah, we we'll okay. just call it the Apollo. It works anywhere on the body, um, but most con for most convenient use, we would typically wear on the ankle or the wrist, and it's about the size of uh, of an Apple Watch. Okay, so here here's my feedback. So during during the interview, I've been wearing this, and when it's been buzzing along, it's either been distracting or it's been pleasantly connecting me to myself whilst connecting to you. That's the idea. And that's a very unusual experience. That's really interesting. And I've never, uh, it, it's been not soothing, but it's been a, a personal moment with my ankle <laughs> <laughs> whilst I'm interviewing you. And it's it's made this a very, a wonderful experience. It's, it's, it's a very wonderful device. Thank you. It should be, it should feel. I feel aroused, soothed. but relaxed. Right. Well, that's the frequency that I put you on. It's kind of this this social energy. Social energy is like, um, a, like uh, energy arousal. We describe it as arousal. Yeah. Um, but calm and yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see not this overthinking being, yourself. Yeah. So I I can see this being very useful for social anxiety. Oh, it's great. Thank you. Yeah. I love it for social anxiety, and they use it to to prevent themselves from having panic attacks. Uh, anecdotally, we haven't done a panic study yet, but uh, we have probably 20 people in the wild who are using our prototypes who have reported to us that they don't have panic attacks anymore because of this device. Okay, so this device, so tell me what's, what studies have been carried out on this because I, I'm game to try things anyway, but so, some uh, some people would prefer some sort of evidence or of a trial. So so what evidence has been acquired so far? So so we did, so I've been working on this since 2014. Uh, the technology came out of the University of Pittsburgh for my work with again, originally with people with treatment-resistant mental illness because we just didn't have the tools that were side-effect-free to send people home with when they didn't want medicine or they weren't responding to medicine. And so 
Um, so what we did is we went and when we you know developed these frequencies originally from our understanding of the neuroscience of safety and touch, the neuroscience of how music affects the body, uh, and the neuroscience of meditation, mindfulness, biofeedback, deep breathing, all these things, to try to replicate these states for people on the go. Uh, we, we just experienced it with ourselves and with our lab mates, and we all felt really nice. But I we feel didn't really nice. Yeah, we didn't understand why. Uh, we didn't really know what we were doing yet, and we didn't necessarily even believe it ourselves. So we decided to run a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover study and in healthy people. And because if we knew we could make a difference in healthy people, then we would have a, you know, based on what we know about contextual treatments of stress, if people who are really under stress or chronic duress, then they would be more likely to respond. But we wanted to try, because they want to feel better. And so we wanted to try it in healthy people first. And so we did a study at the University of Pittsburgh that was wrapped up in uh, 2017. And we showed that in this study that when we gave people these frequencies, these special layered Apollo frequencies, and we gave people placebo frequencies, which were like a cell phone buzz to increase arousal, uh, increase wakefulness and energy, uh, and then a tapping, like that we know is you tapping is often used to increase sense of calm in people. Um, and then a no vibration condition and the subjects and the researchers had no idea what frequencies they were getting. Subjects had no idea what they were supposed to do. Uh, and then we, we uh, measured EEG brainwave patterns. We measured EKG heart rate patterns. We measured respiratory patterns through respiratory band, sweat, which is a sign of sympathetic uh, arousal of the nervous system and also pupil dilation measurements, a sign of cognitive activity and physical movement, which is a sign of agitation. And we measured all of these things in tandem while people are doing different stressful tasks. Uh, very well validated stressful tasks that are used by hundreds of researchers all over the world. And we chose a very particular task called the PACESAT, which is a PACE auditory serial emission task, which is used by NASA to give to astronauts before they go into space to test their ability to do very simple tasks under extreme frustration. So it's basically equivalent <laughs> to like doing taxes, right? Uh -huh. The thing that nobody enjoys, mm -hmm. um, and it's very stressful. And so you basically have to add single digit numbers every two seconds for three minutes straight. You're here, you hear a number every two seconds, two, seven, Five, and you have to add the last two you hear every two seconds and click on the sum on the screen. Even if you're bad at math, it's actually not that hard to do. Okay. But, <laughs> but uh -huh. after about a minute of doing this, and we, but, and each block is three minutes, and we did 12 blocks of this in a row. So after each, after about a minute, you get really frustrated or really bored or yeah. really distracted because you're just like, $60 was enough for this. When is this going to be over? Oh my God, please make it stop. And so people have start having these negative intrusive thoughts, which take your attention out of the task and your performance declines because you start trying harder, but your energy that's going into it is trying to manage your stress response instead of attending to the task at hand, which is exactly what happens when we're doing anything that we don't want to be doing. The very, very common phenomenon that we very well understood, we call it futility. You could keep trying and putting more work in, but because your effort isn't going to manage stress, your performance actually tanks despite the fact you're trying harder. So that is the most frustrating thing for any of us to experience. You try and try and try, but you're not seeing the outcome, right? And so the only things that really improve performance on this task reliably are flow states. So what we call peak performance states or coherent states where we're like in the zone, just focus 100% on what we're doing. Um, and then amphetamines, which boosts selective attention. 
Um, and so what we saw with this task was only with Apollo frequencies, we boosted heart rate variability, which is the rate of change of the heartbeat over time. It's now become our most reliable tool to assess through heart rate patterns, uh, resilience in the nervous system, so the balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. High heart rate variability correlates with, uh, is, is a, uh, it correlates very significantly with high parasympathetic tone. So that would be increased emotion control, increased energy recovery, increased uh, attention control, increased activity in the digestive reproductive system, improved ability to sleep and adapt to stress and change. And we see decreased signs of sympathetic tone, like decreased sweat, decreased heart rate. Um, and what's really fascinating is that the more that we boosted parasympathetic tone, the more your heart rate variability goes up, the more calm people said they felt, and the more their performance increased on the stressful task, up to 25%. So if we were boosting your heart rate variability, if you were one of the people who had like a two to three, three-fold increase in your heart rate variability within three minutes, the only things, by the way, that increase heart rate variability that much that quickly are people who are seasoned meditators, because deep breathing increases heart rate variability as well. And so we, when we see this boost in heart rate variability, we saw a direct relationship with performance outcomes, which is fascinating because that's never actually been demonstrated before that there is this very, very specific and direct connection between how our bodies look physiologically, what's actually going on inside our bodies and how we're actually performing in the real world. It's, that's never really been shown in this way. And so that was one of the most profound findings, but also that when we apply these different frequencies to the body, that the body changes reliably. So if I send you a frequency that's of one nature, and then this didn't happen with the placebo frequencies, the no vibration emission, by the way, and nobody knew what oh. they were getting, right? So only these Apollo frequencies were inducing this change. Oh. And so that's how we knew that these were truly unique patterns that we were sending to the body that was creating a kind of resonance with the heart and the lungs and the vasculature and that kind of thing. And so all, what we ended up seeing later was that not only did we see an a direct relationship between heart rate variability changes, increases, and performance increases, but we saw that the amount of effort that you put into the task, which is measured by EEG brainwave patterns and pupillometry, we know that particularly with pupillometry, how much your pupils dilate, how reactive your pupils are, correlates with how much work you're putting into any task. And so as your effort goes up, your performance now goes up linearly. So remember what I said about futility, in, in a typical task where you feel frustrated, you're trying harder, but your extra energy goes into managed stress, and so your performance actually goes down because your stress is pulling your attention away from the task. We only have so many cognitive resources we can attribute to anything at any one time, consciously, and so if we get distracted, then that energy, that attention goes elsewhere, and we take our minds out of the task, out of the present moment. People say, I feel more calm, I feel more present. I feel more present. They put more effort in, mm -hmm. and that effort goes directly to the task at hand, and they see a proportionate performance increase for the amount of effort they put in. So the harder you try with Apollo frequencies, the more performance outcome you get. And ultimately, we've now had that, uh, we've now replicated these results um, in the wild, and 
we have shown in the wild in the wild by distributing these devices out to people. Oh, I see. We've seen the people increase. Sorry, um, it's, <laughs> no, it's fine. I like talking about it like that because it really is the wild. Okay. You, know, you don't know what's out there. People living in their own lives. I just got these visions of you putting <laughs> putting putting bands on beasts out <laughs> in the field somewhere. No, no, we made like four hundred prototypes that we sent out just into the world, Amazing. and we give them people to use for anywhere from a week to a year, and then we see people over time and how they how their bodies change and how they, you know, they subjectively report and people have wearables, you know, that measure their biometrics. And we see that people have a consistent increase in heart rate variability over time, but also within a short period of time. So within the day, you can see your heart rate variability go up as you use Apollo. And then you can see it go up over the course of weeks and months as you use it over time, because it's training this balance in your nervous system, just like deep breathing and meditation, which has this very powerful learning effect that we have known about for a long time. The more you do it, the easier it gets to access those states. So, so for those people who like being touched, can you overdose? If you wear four of these, can yeah. you, what, what happens then? No, I'm joking. So, so no, no, I'm, that was yeah. just a... That's no, just you can't. To... You can't. And that was important for us, actually, because we wanted to, I'm an addiction psychiatrist predominantly, right? Wow. And so we wanted to make sure that I we were giving it. people alternative that was not habit-forming in the way that it, you became dependent on it. We wanted it to be habit-forming in that you want to use this instead of a drug, Right but not in the way that you have to use it to get the effect that you want. And so what we see is that people who, and, and so now we've done case studies, uh, really a couple hundred case studies in people who have treatment-resistant illnesses like PTSD, depression, autism, ADHD, um, inflammatory conditions, uh, insomnia, and these people who symptoms are always worsened by stress, are seeing dramatic results and they're actually self-tapering medicine. Medicine that they thought they needed before, they're willing, they're voluntarily reducing their medicine use, yep. particularly things like opioid medicines and benzodiazepines, which uh -huh. are incredibly habit-forming and very difficult to come off. For me as a psychiatrist, they're one of the most difficult things to taper people off of uh, because they give you that instant relief. And people are voluntarily discontinuing use because they are getting relief from this. And, they, and it gives them that locus of control that recenters it back in the cell. And, and that's it, so empowering. It is empowering. Cells. And it's also non, it, there's no chemistry here. So there, there's no, there's no medication. There's no, no medication. contraindication. Right. You're not, you're not taking anything at all. So if you don't want to take Western medicine, Western medicine or any psilocybin or any, if you don't want to ingest anything, this is something you just, you put on the skin. Right. So it's, it, it's great for everyone. Right. And, and, at, and then we and have demonstrated group. no side effects in the literature. We particularly chose these patterns of frequencies and the intensity levels of these frequencies because mm -hmm. in the literature, it's, they've never been demonstrated to cause adverse reactions or side effects um, in our over 2,000 case studies in the wild. And in, uh, in, in our clinical trials, we've never had any side effects. Um, we've had people from age 3 to 93 use it. Uh, people who are pregnant have used it. We haven't seen any adverse reactions, which well, is really incredible. It is incredible. I, I have to say, I, I asked you for, for what clinical evidence do you have, and that was a, a, a very thorough response. So I, I certainly hope it satisfies our more skeptical <laughs> le listeners. But I will say to those listeners that, you know, I, I certainly hope that you have the same amount of scrutiny on everything that you do in your life, you know, your bed sheets, whether you breathe the air in London, <laughs> uh, and every action that you do. I. I think for something that's just so well-intentioned, um, to, to have such scrutiny is a bit odd when we don't apply the same scrutiny to every facet of our lives in every single way. It's just something to observe that we get so hung up on vitamin B complex or mm -hmm. this brace or uh, this device or anything. And yet 
we'll, 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 the same people will have a glass of champagne without any consideration whatsoever. Just find that a bit interesting. Yeah, or, but, or uh, eat food that has pesticides on. Or be in relationships that are toxic. Right. For far <laughs> too long. Um, right, I'm very conscious of time, so I, I, I think we have to wrap it up there, although I do have all these questions that I have been... Let's do a quick fire round. Should we do a very quick fire round and then wrap it up? Sure. And I should say, if people want to learn about more about Apollo, they do. go to apolloneuro.com or apolloneuroscience.com uh, and you can learn all about uh, the work that we're doing. We have a special pre-release right now for the listeners of your of your podcast and they can uh, check it out at a very special, nice discount. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, there's a science section up there that they can review some of the work that I just spoke about. So the, the website again where we can purchase this device? It's apolloneuro.com or apolloneuroscience.com. Amazing. I, I really like it. Thank you. Really, really like it. I'm and so glad. So, um, can you, what is the um, long-term side effects of psilocybin? Oh, good question. So, so psilocybin, so all of these medicines are meant to be used intentionally, as we talked about earlier, and they're not meant to be used like daily or, you know, consistently. I think more importantly, the short-term side effects of psilocybin um, is that psilocybin medically is very safe. Most of the hallucinogenic or psychedelic, psychedelic means the root of the word is mind manifesting. Mm -hmm. So things, so medicines that help you manifest your ability to heal uh, in your life or ability to change in your life um, are actually, interestingly, have very few side effects, particularly the plant-based medicines. So psilocybin, people have taken 30, 40, 50 grams of psilocybin and are fine afterwards, as long as they're mentally prepared for the experience. Don't, don't get me wrong, I would never recommend somebody take that much. That's about, that's more than 10 times the dose that we use in the clinic. But the point is that people have taken this amount and they're fine afterwards, as long as they're prepared for mentally and emotionally for whatever may come up during that experience. Um, the side effects are very minimal, but it's important to note that with psilocybin and any psychedelic medicine, that even including cannabis, actually, that part of why these medicines work is that they have a feature, uh, a very important characteristic, which is called dissociation, dissociative effect. Yeah. And what that does is it, again, it, it, it dissolves a default mode network. It dissolves a lot of your sense of self that sees yourself as separate from the rest of the world around you. And you start to see yourself as intimately interconnected with the world around you. Oh. And the, the barriers between self and others start to dissolve. And so... What happens is that if you have a tenuous sense of self and you go into one of these situations unprepared or not adequately prepared in terms of the set and the setting of the experience without the proper resources around you, then you can have a lot of mental and emotional unrest afterwards mm -hmm. because you're, you're dissolving a sense of self that's already fragile. Mm -hmm. And well, so people who have a predisposition to schizophrenia, psychotic disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, or anything that is, that is a disorder that results from a fragile sense of self uh, should not use these medicines, especially not use these medicines alone, because they can really blast you off into a place that is very disconnected from self and, and from the world around us, and di or disconnected from from what we call like our social functional reality, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the last one, is the benefit in 
in the direction of this treatment, partly due to the fact that there is another dimension of healing, which is true. There is another dimension of healing, a spiritual and energetic di dimension. Do mushrooms give us energetic access to the world that modern medicine has perhaps discounted? Is this why there are so many inconsistent results and the placebo effect? There's a lot there. There's a lot there. So, the, so, so I guess the easiest way to answer that is the placebo effect is medicine, Western medicine's word for describing the belief effect. Placebo is belief. So if you believe a medicine to work, it is more likely to work. And if you believe it not to work, it's less likely to work. That's called nocebo, right? And so we have the ability to either augment or shut down or decrease, you know, the ability for anything that we do, whether it's food, whether it's medicine, whether it's uh, some exercise, whatever it is that we're doing, believing in it makes it work better. That is just a fact of reality. It, absolutely. You need but that buy-in, as we said earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think... Again, going, and I think we talked, we definitely touched on the rest of the question, which is, you know, what is it doing to our perception of energy? And, and you know, I think what psilocybin is doing is it's, again, it's, it's dissolving this default way that we've seen ourselves and seen the world, including things that we haven't necessarily seen. So we, we have sensory organs like our eyes, which see a visual spectrum of light. We have our ears, which hear an auditory spectrum of sound. We have our, um, you know, our nose and our, and our taste buds, which taste a different spectrum of experience. All of these things are vibration-based. They're all based in frequency. They're based in, sometimes it's chemical basis, sometimes it's a, it's a you know, more of a wave basis that we understand as vibration um, in the case of frequencies of sound and light. And so what, but, but that's only a small, um, a tiny spectrum of everything that's going on around us, right? We know there's x-rays around us, there's radio frequencies, there's EMF, there's UV, infrared, we don't see those or experience those on a regular basis, but they're always around us. Mm -hmm. So we know that there's all this other stuff going on around us. Just call it energy to generalize, right? That it is affecting our bodies and that is always there, yeah. but we're just not perceptive of it because we haven't taught ourselves to listen to it. And so learning to listen, learning to listen to as much information as we can around us is a skill that has to be practiced. And what psilocybin does allow us to do, it is allows us to, again, dissolve the default mode, the default way that we've been seeing the world and ourselves and the way that we've been experiencing all of this energy around us so that we can have an opportunity, even sometimes just a brief opportunity, to see the world through or to in interact with the world through a clear sensory lens where you now have access to be able to, you've changed your filter. You've changed the filter for the frequencies coming into our bodies, for the energy coming into our body. So it's not to say you're perceiving anything that's not actually there. It's absolutely there, but but we just haven't taught ourselves to listen to it, and we haven't taught ourselves to perceive it in the context of the social reality that we're in. So that's why the integration and the preparation are so critical, because if you go into it believing that what you're seeing is a hallucination or a hallucinatory phenomenon that's not real, or you don't understand how to interpret and learn from what you're experiencing, then you could perceive it in any which way, which may not be very helpful to integrating a more whole sense of self, which is the whole point of these treatments. So it's, it's really critical to make sure that if you, if you do have one of these treatments, that you have the proper preparation and the proper integration. It's not what after. you do, it's how you do it. Exactly. You know? and, it, and it's, 
it's not what you take, it's, it's why you're taking it as well. Mm -hmm. I just believe these uh, philosophies. Let's call it a day at that, because you're going to be late for your next meeting, and I, don't, and I don't want to be responsible for that. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. You've been extraordinary. I know they're going to absolutely love it, and they were so interested in hearing your wisdom. And I, I love what you've done. And thank you so much for contributing to us and the world. And well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, so thank you very much for coming on to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy.